Hey, good morning to everybody. We're just not too far away from being uh, able to see one another. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I'm hoping that we'll get a few folks in here. Early bird. I know uh, Sunday is going to be... <laughs> It's going to be a crazy day, five services in a Bible class, and I'm looking forward to every bit of it. So the question of the morning is, why did the chicken cross the road? Donald Trump says, well, I've been told by many sources, good sources, they're very good sources, that the chicken crossed the road. All the fake news wants to do is write nasty things about the road, but it's really a good road, a beautiful road. Everybody knows how beautiful that road is. Joe Biden. Why did the chicken do the, uh, the thing in the... Uh, well, you guys know the rest. That's, that's, a, that's a little Joe. Barack Obama, let me be perfectly clear. If the chicken like their eggs, they can keep their eggs. No chicken will be required to cross the road to surrender her eggs, period. George Bush, we don't really care why the chicken crossed the road. We just want to know if the chicken is on our side of the road or not. The chicken is either with us or it's against us. There's no middle ground here. Dick Cheney, where's my gun? Bill Clinton, I did not cross the road with that chicken. Al Gore, I invented the chicken. <laughs> I like that one. Al Sharpton, why are all the chickens white? Dr. Phil, the problem, what we have, the problem that we have is this chicken will not realize that it must first deal with a problem on this side of the road before it goes... After the problem on the other side of the road, what we need to do is help him realize how stupid he's acting by not taking on his current problems by adding new problems. Anderson Cooper, we have reason to believe there is a chicken, but we have not yet been allowed to have access to the other side of the road. Nancy Grace, that chicken crossed the road because he's guilty. You can see it in his eyes. And by the way, he walks Pat Buchanan to steal the job of decent, hardworking Americans. Dr. Seuss, did the chicken cross the road? Did he cross it with a toad? Yes, the chicken crossed the road, but why it crossed, I've not been told. Ernest Hemingway, to die in the rain alone. Grandpa, in my day, we didn't ask why chickens crossed the road. Somebody told us the chicken crossed the road and that was good enough for us. Aristotle, it is the nature of chickens to cross the road. Albert Einstein, did the chicken really cross the road or did the road move underneath the chicken? And finally, my all-time favorite, Colonel Sanders. Did I miss one? <laughs> All good stuff. Hey, we're in chapter six this morning. <clears throat> See if we can make a little bit of progress. <clears throat> um, this week's been interesting and I'm gonna start this way. If you've been watching the news, there's there's been a, it's almost like every week there's a different focus as we go through the, the land of coronavirus. This week, the focus has been kind of on um, the, what I'm going to call the haves and the have-nots. <clears throat> that's been the, the focus. And the title that's been utilized this past week is uh, Coronavirus, America Divided. We've got the haves and the have-nots. And of course, the the idea or the arguments being made that, you know, when it comes to this virus, you've got uh, the, the haves who uh, tend to be doing better, are, are healthier, are less impacted, and the have-nots, the poor. And uh, without question, when you look statistically at what's going on, we recognize that a lot of folks that are in that have-not category are folks who work in industries that are are considered um, essential 
and they, they don't have the ability to stay home. And so out they go, they're exposed and their, their cases are higher and, and their death rates are, are higher. And uh, so it's paradoxical to me that the, the haves, uh, many of the haves are, are people in, in Hollywood who are trapped inside multi-million dollar um, mansions complaining about that and, uh, and controlling the media. Well, I want to kind of use that, that language to start us off today because in a sense, as you get to uh, chapter six, um, what, what, what we see Paul doing, he's been talking about, well, uh, we've lived as, as Jews. Again, the, the Roman church is a church that's come out of Judaism. We've lived as Jews, kind of thinking of ourselves as the haves. We're the haves. We have the law. We had the promises um, that were given to our, our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We have um, the, the, the Torah and the, the word of God. We have the, the covenant promise of God. We have circumcision. And, and the rest of the world have nots. They don't have it. And, and as a result, there's kind of been this sense of um, living a life where we're, we're going to kind of keep what we have. We're going to hoard that to ourselves and, and look at the rest of the world in, in almost a judgmental way. Look at those people. Um, and, and so what Paul's needing to do is explode that. Yes, you're, you're Christians now. You're following Jesus Christ. But there's a part of you that's still Jewish. You're hanging on to that idea. And so he's been working hard, almost like a, you know, a... Um, uh, a, a hammer and chisel, chiseling away that that hardcore Jewish ideology that we're the haves and they're the have-nots. And what he wants to wants to say, what he's been saying all along is, uh, we we are all we are all have-nots in the sense that we were separated by sin at birth from Jesus Christ. We have not salvation. We come into this world, and uh, we're all in, infected with sin, and as a result of that sin, separated from God and worthy of, of judgment. And uh, so we're all have-nots, but at the same time, we're all haves. Now, this promise that was made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, it, it belongs to everyone, not just Jews, but the Gentiles as well. And, and he's working to really get that into the church because the church has, uh, has to, to, to capture this sense that, no, we, we follow a God who loves the world. Well, in the midst of um, carrying out this, this conversation with the church, there's this underlying question that uh, rises up. And in fact, it, it becomes a charge that's actually made against Paul. And, and I want you to kind of hear this and, and get it clear because it'll, it'll help you make sense of chapter 6. As, as people listen to Paul, this word grace keeps reappearing. Okay? We, all, we all are have-nots. We, have, we, we don't have salvation just at birth. But we all have access to God through what? Through grace. God is a God of love. He's not a God who stands over us and says, oh, look, you didn't, oh, you didn't keep that part of the law. Whoop, you didn't keep that part of the law. Whoop, you didn't keep that. He's a God of grace. So 
as people have listened to Paul, they've, they've, they've come up with this charge that, well, here's the problem, Paul, is you're all about this grace thing. It's grace, 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 grace. And you've taken the law and diminished it. You've thrown it away. You make it sound like just everybody can do whatever they want to do. And at the end of the day, you're forgiven. Now, I'm going I'm to stop for a minute, and I'm going to say to you that that, that ideology, I can, I can live the way I want to live, and at the end of the day, we're all forgiven, it is really, for, for us as, as Western Christians, something that we find in this culture. We run into it all the time. The idea in, in Western culture is, as long as I live a life that is is not wrought with desires to kill other people or, or, or murder. As long as I try as hard as I can to be to be true to myself, I'm good. That's grace in, in American theology. And and so um, what Paul's going to do in chapter six, he's going to respond to that charge. He's going. To, he wants to be able to say, well. well we need to be able to see God as a God of grace. But, but we haven't thrown the law away. It has a place in our lives. And so, um, verse, verse number one of chapter six almost starts off as though Paul is trying to answer that charge at this point. He's been talking about the grace of God, accessible to all. And now let's answer this question. Does the law has it just gone away, or does it have a role in my life? So he begins with these words. He says, what, what shall we say then? Question mark. You, you can almost hear it, right? I'm responding to this charge. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? A lot of people know this about Martin Luther. Um, one of Luther's uh, favorite sayings and is oftentimes quoted uh, outside of context, but one of his favorite sayings was, when you sin, sin boldly. Kind of an interesting saying. Think about that. When you sin, sin boldly. That's Luther who's discovered grace. Remember, he grows up as a Catholic, and he understands the law, and he's condemned of that law, and he lives every day fearful that I'm not going to, I'm, I'm going to die without confessing a sin. I'm going to go to hell. That's Luther. Until he discovers grace. And once he discovers grace, he discovers what? This truth that there is no sin that I'm going to, that I can commit that Jesus Christ didn't die for. And so when he says, when you sin, sin bully, Luther's not permissioning people. He's not saying, yep, go out there and, and create a whopper. What he's saying is that we, we in Jesus Christ, we stand in grace boldly but that doesn't license us to sin. It doesn't give us permission to. That's what Paul is saying here. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may just, you know, abound? So we can just keep talking about grace, 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 grace. Notice his, his answer immediately in verse, num verse number two is, meganoito. So in Greek, meganoito gets translated in English by no means. Now I'm going to translate it a little bit differently. I'm going to say it this way because I think you'll understand it better. What he's saying is, H, no. You get that one? I mean, top of his voice, he's screaming at these folks, uh-uh. We're not saying 
that grace is a license to sin. In fact, oppositely, he asks this question. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Hmm. Interesting. It's going to bring things back to what it means to belong to Jesus Christ. If I belong to Jesus Christ, what, what role does the law play in my life? Where, where is grace? And, and what he's saying is, um, if, I've, if, I've, if I am, am a follower of Jesus Christ, something's happened. I've actually died to sin. Now, he's going to explain what that means. And I think it's important. I've died to sin. And if I've died to sin, I don't just live in it. I don't find grace to be my ticket to go do whatever I want to do. Absolutely not. Now, he explains what he means by that. What does it mean to, to say, well, I've died to sin? Go, go to verse number three. He says, do, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Fascinating words. Um, I've used these words many times in my life in discussions, theological discussions with, with folks who tend to believe that baptism is just a symbol. It's just a, it's a ritual act that's performed by human beings to demonstrate the commitment that, that they have made to follow Jesus Christ. That's evangelical theology in a nutshell, right? I've decided to follow Jesus Christ. I've made that decision in my strength. I mean, with the help of God, but I made, I made that decision. I didn't. And now I'm going to go get baptized because baptism is, is just a sign. It's a symbol that, hey, I did this. I, I've decided to follow Jesus Christ. I want you to look at this verse. No, I want you to look at the verbs in this verse. They paint a whole different picture. Baptism not as just a sign or a symbol, but there's something that is effected by baptism. Baptism does something. Right? If it's just a symbol, it doesn't do anything. It symbolizes something that I've done. But here, Paul, Paul is describing baptism as something, actually, that, that God does something through in my life. Just listen to his words again. Don't you know, all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. As Lutheran Christians, we teach this, that when I'm baptized, there is an act that God performs in my life. And part of that act is an act of death. Namely, he puts to death my, my old man, my sinful being, the, the being that I was born, right? And as much as he died and was put into a grave, baptism, when I go under that water, it's like being put into a grave. That old part of me, that sinful part of me, is put to death by who? By God. He's, he is the actor in baptism. Continue verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. How, how was Jesus raised from the dead? By the glory of the Father. We, too, 
might, I love these words, walk in a newness of life. Okay. Here's what we teach is that baptism does two things. It puts to death that old man, right? But it also conveys to us this gift of faith accompanied by now the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life who becomes the causative actor in everything that I do. The actor, the Holy Spirit, who causes me to walk in a newness of life. <clears throat> who am I? What, what is Paul saying? So when you, fall, when, you, when you come to know Jesus Christ, yes, we, we're under grace. That God meets us while we're still sinners. Puts us to death. And then what? He raises us up to walk in the newness of life. So do we just, as we're going to walk in the newness of life, do we just say, well, hey, uh, God's graceful so I can sin? No. I'm walking differently now. I'm going to be walking with the Spirit of God in Jesus Christ. That's going to change the way that I see myself. It's going to change the way I see the world. It's going to give me a whole different sense of purpose. It's going to give me a whole new direction in life. I'm going to walk differently now that God has acted in my life through baptism. Verse 5. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection with his. So there's, there's the, the temporal side of baptism. I'm going to walk here in this world as long as I live in a newness of life. And there's also, what, an eschatological sense in which it points me forward to someday, after I've physically died, I will be resurrected with Jesus Christ. It, it covers the whole scope of life. Verse 6, we know that our old self, this is really interesting. This language gets interesting, so kind of, kind of pay attention to it. We, we know that our old self was crucified with him. Just as Jesus was put to death on that cross, my old self was what? It was crucified, put to death. Um, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Uh, I think this is important uh, over my years in, in ministry to really look at what sin does. Um, again, far from Paul being a person who says, yep, you, you, you follow God, he's a God of grace, you can just go live any way that you want to live. No. Far from that, what Paul's been is, is trying to say is, no, the, the law does have a place in our life. And what the law does is it points us in the direction that God calls us to, to live. We can't do that. Certainly, we, we, our old self won't do that. But this spirit who enters into our life uh, through, through baptism in the Word causes me to, to desire the things of God causes me to walk in that newness of life. He also gives me power to no longer be enslaved by sin. So I'm going to ask you a question this morning, and I and I think it's a I mean it's a significant question, um, and I don't expect you to answer it just snap off the top of your head. Maybe maybe you can, maybe you can't. But I want you to think about this a little bit. What sin or sins? enslave you right now? What sin or sins enslave you?
Now, there's a sense in which, if we're all honest, something's going to come to our mind. You're going to reach in there and you're going to say, you know, I really wrestle with this or with these things. Over my years as a pastor, I've, I've had the, the privilege of listening to people, God's people, at points along the way where sin has so enslaved them, it's become, it's become a tyrannical master of them. Uh, I've had people walk into my office and say to me, I, I, can't, I can't overcome this, this, this sin of sexual addiction. I, I, I am drawn to pornography and I, I go back to it and I tell myself I'm, I'm not going to do it again and I go back to it and I tell myself I'm not going to and I go back to it. I've had uh, people come into my office and say I, I can't overcome this, this, this sin, this addiction I have to alcohol. I want to. I, I've gone through cycle after cycle. I'm going to get rid of that stuff. I get rid of it. Um, I started AA, I, I made it for a while, I went back to it. just seems to just happen, just seems to hold on to me. I had one young lady uh, many years ago who was enslaved to um, just a, a, a medication, uh, pain medication. So much so that uh, when she couldn't get it, in other words, she, she had gotten it from so many doctors that they figured her out and started to deny her from getting that pain medication. She actually crashed her car into a wall in order to hurt herself enough to get the medication. I've talked to pastors who become addicted to pain medications, opioids, and finally get to that point of saying, I'm in trouble. I thought I could beat this, but I can't. I'm stuck. I, I don't know what to do. Um, I've talked to people who've said to me, you know what? My, my sin is not an addiction, but I'm addicted to something else. I'm addicted to pride. I'm so prideful. And it gets in the way. And in fact, it's cost me so much. So many relationships I've lost because I just can't seem to, to beat that thing. What, what Paul's talking about here is significant. And, and I hope you'll allow yourself to just be introspective enough. My goodness, uh, we're living in an introspective time right now. We have time to, to think about this. Where, where has sin just kind of set its trap into you in such a way that you feel like, I, I, don't, I don't seem to be able to overcome this? What Paul's doing is he's saying, look, far from just live the way you want to live, what God has given us in grace and in the Spirit of God, and through baptism, this death, is this promise that sin cannot enslave you. And what I've discovered over the course of my lifetime is there's these breakthrough moments that can happen in people's lives. And too often we wait until that breakthrough is almost forced upon us. But there are breakthrough moments where we really do, in the light of the Spirit, come to realize, look, this thing is owning me, and, and I, I don't want this. When you get to that point, what, what Paul's saying here is, is significant in that he's telling us, well, yeah, you can't overcome that, but God can. And, and, and I want to tell you, there is no sin that can be your master. And, and don't let it be. Come to him and, and surrender it to, to him and know that that's going to be a daily thing. It's going to be an everyday thing. 
because he can set you free from the slavery that sin desires to affect in our lives. And so what, what I'm hearing Paul give to the church is part of the blessing that you bring out into the world, you know, part of the gospel is right here, that we, we follow a God who's making us new, who's setting us on a different path in life. It's a path that it's not the law. You better do this. You better do yes. You better do that. It's not that path. In fact, it's, it's, a, it's a grace path that leads us into relationship with him. But it's a path that has hope in it, that can set you free from the very things that are trying to own you or enslave you or hold on to you. And I, I find it's a beautiful part of what we bring into the world is um, as, you, as you get to talk to people at your place of work or uh, the school that you go to or you know, the, the bleacher seats that you're sitting in there and, and you're talking with people who don't know Jesus Christ. And one of the, my favorite questions is, how, 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 not just how are you doing, but how are you really doing? And as people open up, oh my goodness, there, there's broken places. And the realization that I'm not who I really want to be because the Spirit's at work, Right? So um, I think very significant, verse 6. Let's go to verse 7. Um, Paul says, For one who has died has been set free from sin. We've been set free from it. If I've died, if I've been buried in Jesus Christ, I've been set free from sin. Now he's not saying you're not going to sin anymore, because we will. But he's saying I'm set free from its power. Right? Uh, verse 8, Now if we've all died with Christ, we believe that we will live with him. That's why Paul says it this way. To me, for me to live is Christ. I put on Christ each day. Verse 9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead, he'll never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. The life he lives, he lives to God. So, verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, if you just take that one verse and frame it, it's beautiful. Again, it's not... For me to follow Jesus Christ means that I'm going to achieve righteousness through the law. doesn't mean that. What it means is for me to live is Jesus Christ. I live in a relationship with a God who in grace is pulling me towards himself away from that life of sin. Pulling me towards himself away from that life of sin. Giving me through the Spirit of God received in baptism the power to become different. And I desire, I don't desire to walk in sin. I desire to live out his calling. So, is, as Paul answered the question, remember, top of chapter 6, the question is, um, hey, have you just gotten rid of the law? Has he answered the question? Well, he has. He's saying, no, we didn't get rid of the law. But what we're saying to you is it's not through the law that we have life. We have life through relationship with Jesus Christ, and the difference is, grace pulls us, the Spirit pulls us away from sin towards that relationship. And uh, that, that is the essence of Christianity. Verse 12 then says, uh, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. 
verb there for obey, hupakuo, to come underneath its passions. Akuo, remember acoustic, akuo, acoustic, hupo, underneath. So you're underneath the hearing of your passions. You are every day. Every day, you're underneath your passions. Our world makes sure of it. Uh, you're, the phones you carry around with you make sure of it. You walk past a store and it goes, bing! Hey, did you know they're having a sale? Right? Uh, you pull up stuff and something on your um, internet and all of a sudden you've got 50 advertisements coming at you. Your passions are constantly talking to you. You need this. You want this. You desire this. You, whoa. You want to you come underneath those, the hearing of that? Or do you want to come underneath the hearing of God's voice? Which do you want? He says, don't let sin reign so that you just hear your passions again and again and again. Verse 13, don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Don't just, don't take your, your hands, your eyes, your ears, your mouth, and present them to the devil. Here you go, use these. But we do. And it's easy to do it. And so Paul says, no, 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 we're going to live differently underneath the grace of Jesus Christ. Don't present your instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as, this is beautiful, as instruments for righteousness. God, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Right? Take Take my moments and my days. Take take my mind. Take my, my take take my my the, the gifts you put in me. Let them be used by you as instruments for rightness, and as instruments, Lord, that that you utilize in this world of ours. You know you know what comes to my mind when I read that um, when I read this section is the words that Paul gives us in Ephesians 6 when he really tells us how to wake up each day. And uh, Ephesians 6 uh, is where we have the analogy of what it means to put on the whole armor of Jesus Christ. And, and I kind of see that here. It's, it's almost echoed here. This sense that as I wake up in the morning, what do I do? I put, I, I'm going to be going out into battle. And it's, it's a battle for souls. And I want my instruments to be used by you, God. But I also know there's an enemy. Not just without, but within. And so, Lord, I need to put on this breastplate of righteousness, of rightness with you. I, I need to put on this helmet, cut, cover my mind, my head. I, I, need, to, I need to put on these, these shoes that, that take, on, take off and run to bring your good news to other people. I need this sword. I need this shield. Lord, give me that. I want all of that on me in order that I might be who you've called me to be an instrument in your hands. And we'll close with verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you since, here's the, here's the beautiful word, you're not under law, but under grace. And what Paul's masterfully done here, he's, he's just kind of flipped things upside down. He started off with this charge. Grace means you can just go sin whenever you want. And law means that, no, we're not going to sin. We have to do what's right because God demands it of us. He's flipped it upside down. And we, what, he would, what he would say to us, I think, today is, if you try to live under the law, what will it do? 
it, it, it will just continuously condemn you. It won't bring you life. But if I live under grace, I don't do away with the law. But I'm pulled into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And through that relationship, and, the, and then the, the work of the Spirit within me, I'm made new. And I'm able to, to, to look at who I am honestly. But I'm also able to look at sin in the eye and say, you may not have dominion over me. I was made to serve the one who loves me most. And I serve not because I have to, not because it, I will get the reward of eternity for it, but because I am loved. And as one loved, I present all of me to God for his use. We'll stop there and we'll come back after it. Uh, what does it mean to be a slave to righteousness? Let's pray. Lord, as we close out this week uh, in our journey with, with Paul through Romans, Lord, uh, take some of these verses and allow us to just think about who we are. Uh, we really are. We've got a little time to introspect. And as we look at our lives, uh, recognize uh, first and foremost that we're people who live under your grace but also know that you're changing us. And that's going to be our entire life. Lord, where, where are those places right now that we just need to come to you and say, God, we can't. I can't change that. And give them to you and let you change us, Lord, that we might be fully consecrated, Lord, to thee. In Jesus' name, amen.